Coming up on Golf Today, Architect Week continues on. Gil Hance joins the program to talk his path to architect success, what it's like restoring some of the most famous golf courses in this world, and what's the perfect compliment a, design, a designer could receive. Plus, golfers love talking favorites, favorite golfers, favorite courses, favorite destination. What about simplifying it down to our favorite par threes, favorite par fours, and favorite par fives on this planet? Jaime and I break it down and ask you to do the same. And a phrase I'm not sure we were expecting to say as much as we had the last couple of weeks, more Tiger talk on this Tuesday. We'll discuss Tiger, the course designer, look at some of his work and give love to his favorite golf course in the world. The show is sketched out. Now it's time to move some dirt. Golf Today is now. Golf Today, brought to you by PointsBet. It is Golf Today. Shane Bacon with the great Jaime Diaz. And Jaime, I'm glad I'm sitting next to you. I want to talk a little golf architecture. You know, this is a subject I don't think 10 years ago we would have spent an entire week talking about. But golf architecture has become cool. It's cool to chat about not just the way golf courses are designed, but some of the historical golf courses out there. It's the art of golf, you know, and I think people, as they've gotten more sophisticated about the game and walk the golf courses, are starting to realize so much of the pleasure is the actual design and the shots that the golf course inspires you to, to, to hit. And that's really what you remember when you, when you leave. And, and I think golf architecture just resonates more and more, especially as we've gotten more sophisticated about the history of it. And then we had this period called the Golden Age of Architecture right around 1915 through the early 30s that really the best land with golf architects that were focused only on the golf course, not on real estate, did some real works of art that we can still enjoy and they're being restored now and improved so they, they match the modern game. But for me, just growing up in San Francisco and following my dad around when I was very young, there were some spectacular little muni courses like Lincoln Park right next to the Golden Gate Bridge. And I just found the beauty of it and, uh, you know, something that I felt I love sports, but I always felt like golf has the best playing field. There's no doubt about it. And sorry, you know, the, the Golf in the Kingdom, the book, actually, I think, awakened a lot of people to what golf architecture is about. And, there, and there's a lot of kind of modern people talking about this. I mean, I give a lot of credit to the No Lane Up guys. I give a lot of credit to Andy Johnson at the Fried Egg because, again, this wasn't a topic that I think a lot of people were sitting around the 19th hole chatting about. I don't think they were diving deep into the way golf courses are constructed and what's the good and the bad of design. And now when you play a golf course, I mean, you can see certain little aspects. We're going to dive into some of the terminology in a bit and there's just so much stuff that's more than the 18 holes you're playing and I think that's what's so special about this sport and you know baseball has a little of this Jaime mm -hmm. when you kind of talk about stadiums. some of the historic mm -hmm. stadiums mm -hmm. in that sport but it's still not the same as walking the grounds and playing those golf courses and getting the opportunity to fly to Scotland and play the yeah. old course I mean that is so unique to golf it's a total experience I've always thought you know people who have sort of an artistic bent you know English majors they like our golf architecture because you look at these blogs Andy you know at, at, at the fried egg and Jeff Shackle these guys are readers. These guys are people who love the words and the art. And golf courses can be captured beautifully. You know, Herb Wynn wrote beautifully about golf courses, Bernard Darwin. There is a legacy going back, and I think more players are more people are discovering that and applying it now to what's possible at some of these great pieces of land that are still available, like Mike Kaiser's done at Bannon Dunes and other places, and Bill Kaur and, and Ben Crenshaw and Tom Doak and all these guys. They love the old history, but they love pushing it forward in a way that makes it alive for future golfers. It's, uh, it's so interesting to hear professional golfers at times talk about it as well, mm -hmm. because, you know, we spend so much time at these desks talking about professional golf, and this yeah. is a whole other world. I mean, architecture is an entirely different world. I mean, those great stories of Ben Crenshaw playing practice rounds during tournament weeks. Yeah. It's some of the famous golf courses that weren't exposed at that point. I mean, you've heard from Zach Blair at times mm -hmm. kind of talking yeah. about having a problem on a Tuesday or Wednesday, wanting to go play the Fishers Islands of the world and not playing a practice round yeah. at the course the tournament is uh, at that week. I mean, again, it is, a, it is a whole new world that we're still uncovering. It's a whole new world that we're still so interested in. And you mentioned kind of restoration work. Mm -hmm. Gil Hans is really the man doing it right now. And, and and he's the guy out there that's not just putting his hand on some of the classics, but he's designing his own golf course. I mean, you look at some of Gil's original work here. Boston Golf is just an unbelievable course. Also, one of the great new logos in the game. A hoopy match play. Everybody raves about the match play course down there. You know, I mean, that doesn't have a, an index down there on that golf course. You can't post a score. It's all about playing match play. Pinehurst number four. Jaime is an unbelievable golf course next to number two down there as well. Stream Song Black is great down in Fort Castle Stewart. You see their Olympic golf course down in Rio and Rustic Canyon as well. That's all original 
Gill Design. And then, Jaime, you look at some of the courses he's put his hand on here, and, I mean, it is the who's who of golf courses. Oh, my gosh. Yale. You know, we didn't mention the cradle, by the way, the par three at Pinehurst, which is, I think, being a really formative thing for people getting into the game. LACC, Oakland Hills, Sleepy, the Country Club, Yale coming up as part of Gill's work, Baltus Hall. I mean, the list goes on and on. The man has done everything. And we typically call it, you know, stars and cars. This is like Gill in a bulldozer. <laughs> Gill joins us now. Gil, we appreciate the time. I wanted to start with uh, you and I working together. I had the privilege of sitting next to you during a couple of U.S. Opens, discussing the courses, explaining the questions that those golf courses were asking. The next two U.S. Opens will be played at your restorations. How wild is it to go from commentating on a golf course at a U.S. Open to seeing your work be presented in these national championships? Well, it, it's exciting. Uh, you know, when we when we did those together, it was one of those where I had to do a deep dive on courses that I hadn't didn't know anything about. And so it was interesting to, to try and learn and study. And, and if doing it at Wingfoot uh, or at the Country Club or LACC would have been really easy. I would have had to do a lot less homework to get prepared for the for the broadcasts. But it was something I enjoyed thoroughly. I really it was a good time working with with you and, and Brad was terrific. Um, you guys made it so easy for a guy who's never done TV before. So it was it was fun. Gil, tell us about the initial spark and your roots in architecture, your classes at Cornell, your scholarship here studying the great links of uh, British Isles. What grabbed you about the whole endeavor? Well, it, it started actually with my grandfather, and, and, and he was the only golfer in our family. He used to take me out to play golf at Southward Ho on Long Island, a, an A.W. Tillinghast course. And so there was just something magical about that golf landscape. I, I'm, not, I'm guessing a lot of it was him being in that landscape with me. But I think it was when I got to Cornell, uh, the opportunity there that they gave us to, to branch out and really do all of my independent studies on golf course design and then ultimately granting me the, the William Frederick Dreer Award to spend a year in Great Britain where I think that provided the base and of everything I believe in golf architecture, ultimately trying to allow the natural uh, landforms to dictate strategy and interest and, and unique character. And then also, you know, the way you play the game, the walking aspect of it, the, the camaraderie, all of those things were really crystallized in that year I got to spend over in, in Great Britain and came back, wrapped up my master's degree and, and went to work with Tom Doak. Really, very, very fortunate path. Gil, what's the best compliment an architect, architect can receive? I thought we had fun playing your golf course. Fun. Uh, I love I love to hear the word fun. It's so much. It, it, Jim Wagner and I really do appreciate when people, you know, not so much that okay we got the strategy or the, it was just we had a we had a ball. We wanted to go back out and play again. I, I in my mind that's the best compliment. And then followed only by hey it looks it looks like it had been there forever. Gil, what made the golden age of architecture special? Is golf better the more we return to it? I believe so. I, I think, Jaime, that the, what made it so special is that all of those projects were focused first and foremost solely on golf, right? It was, we're building a golf course, we're building a golf club, we're focused on how can we maximize this landscape and the natural advantages it gives to us. There was no conversation about housing development. There were no conversations about where the car paths go. There were no conversations about fountains and creating quote unquote signature holes. It was golf pure and simple. And I think when you take the talent of the, those original architects and their focus solely on golf and you give them, you know, in some cases, great pieces of ground, but in a lot of cases, good pieces of ground, they were always gonna turn them into great, wonderful golf courses that are, they're fun to play and that they're, they somehow tug at our heartstrings. Uh, when those of us who really love the game of golf, anytime we get a chance to play one of those golden age golf courses, I think we get excited about that chance. Gil, a lot of time is spent researching any and all things you can find about a project you take on. Sometimes the research, as Hogan once said, is in the dirt, right? Can you tell us about the story of finding the 19th hole at Los Angeles Country Club and you kind of digging that bad boy out? Yeah, it was it was interesting. It was this sort of mythical hole uh, that in the in the 1920s in, in one of the, the Los Angeles opens, uh, the, the green was so severely pitched that I think people were routinely taking sevens and eights on a 110 yard hole. And as a result, it was pulled when George Thomas did his redesign of the North Course, he pulled that golf hole. Even though I don't think he wanted to pull it, I think the powers that be at L.A. said, listen, we can't have a hole that controversial. So it then sat for the longest time off to the, the right-hand side of the 17th hole. 
And when we got into that work, Jim Wagner, Jeff Shackelford, and I were able to go find it in and amongst the trees and then ultimately convince the club that it would be a great idea. Again, talking about fun, uh, to have a fun extra hole and, and one that would even in this day and age at that short yardage challenge everybody uh, as it relates. So we just dusted it off and, and did the best we could. Thankfully, there were some good old photos of it. And thankfully, nobody bulldozed it in the interim. So it was, it was fun to bring that back. And which of the architects that are sort of in the pantheon have been your biggest influences and why? You know, I, I think it's George Thomas. Uh, you know, the, what he was thinking, as Shane mentioned earlier, we do a ton of research and we really try and do a deep dives into each and every one of these projects. But doing so at, at LACC, I think ultimately made all of us better golf course architects because Thomas was thinking so much outside of the box with the courses within a course, with aligning specific hole locations with specific tee locations, different routes and, and ways to play the golf course, plenty of width. Uh, his whole thought process was something that I think we had danced around and, and really thought and talked about, but never it never crystallized for us, nor did we ever have the chance to implement it. I mean, a little bit here at Rustic Canyon, but I think that ultimately it was one of those things where it made us better. It, it, it formulated a lot of our opinions for when we did the Olympic course in Rio. So I, I think we became better golf course architects by studying and learning more about George Thomas. Gil, I'm about to give you a compliment, so prepare yourself. I was watching the oh, no. Beatles doc on Disney Plus, and I was kind of thinking about Peter Jackson's work, and I thought of you because Peter Jackson had 60 hours of footage, and he had to cut it down into eight hours. When you're restoring one of these classic <laughs> golf courses, you've got to do something similar. You've got to see the work out there, and you've got to present it in a natural way, kind of giving a, a hat tip to the original design. How tough is it to go through that process and not put too much of Gil Hance's work on it and make sure that it still kind of looks like the original design. Honestly, I don't find it difficult at all. I find it enjoyable. We really love and understand and want that challenge uh, to, to try and do the best we possibly can to figure out what they did specifically at this site, not what they did at, at uh, you know, other places that they've, it's just, all right, what did Tillinghast do at Baltus Roll? What did he do at, at Wingfoot? What did Ross do at Oakland Hills? Not to, what did Ross do at Pinehurst and how does that relate? So I think we, we enjoy that, that challenge. Uh, it makes every job fresh and unique. Like if you think about it, you don't want to, you never want to get repetitive in what you do, whether it's new work or restoration work. So if we can have a fresh perspective on Tillinghast or Ross every single time we go into one of their projects, it ultimately, I think, yields the best results. Gil, the Yale University course is just up the road uh, from here, from, uh, here uh, at Stanford. Uh, it's such a fascinating monumental project, a huge scale course by C.B. McDonald and Seth Rayner. What do you want that to be when you are done restoring it? As accurate as possible to, to their original design. And I think the scale of it, as we've been studying, getting into it, the scale of it is going to shock people. I mean, it's already a big golf course, but what they contemplated there and what they built is significantly bigger than what's there right now. So I think that all the folks at Yale... Um, and, and us, are, we're all aligned as far as getting it back to the best version of, uh, that we can put it of, of what they originally did. And, and it's our goal to, to get it all the way back. And it's, it's, it's amazingly exciting to, be, to have been honored and entrusted with that project. Gil, in terms of bones, when you look at Yale, I mean, is this a, a top 10 course in the world? I mean, just kind of looking at it from 1 through 18, I think that's kind of been something a lot of people have talked about for years is it's just got these unbelievable bones. Yeah, I think, you know, rankings are so subjective. I don't know where it's going to fall, but I, I think it has that potential because it, it, the scale of it's audacious. I mean, it is something that, you know, obviously Rayner and McDonald did all their template holes and they would always, you know, you'd, you'd see these same golf holes, but the scale with which they built them at Yale was, was off the charts. And so I think the, the, the scale of the features, the scale of the property, the scale of that landscape, ultimately, when, we, when we're able to remarry all of those elements, I think people are going to have their eyes opened. Gil, what was Pete Dye's greatest gift to the game, and do you have a, a favorite Pete Dye story? 
you know, Pete was a genius. Uh, that that word gets thrown around, I think, a little bit too much, but he was literally a genius. I, I you know, I wish I had had the opportunity to work for him. Uh, obviously, working for Tom Doak, I, I heard a lot of stuff secondhand, and, and I hear a lot of stories from Bill Coor about Pete. But what he created is ultimately the way that we work, the way that Tom works, the way that Bill and Ben work, the the way that, that Keith Reb and Riley work. I mean, there's uh, so many guys who were influenced, maybe not directly, but through that approach to design. And I'll, I'll never forget, Tom Doak always told me that, you know, Pete would tell him, listen, in order to learn how to design a golf course, you need to know how to build one first. And if you don't understand how to build one, then your designs are either never going to work from a practical standpoint, but they're never going to be quite as good. So this, you know, sitting here in a bulldozer uh, is ultimately a tribute to Pete and the way that he thought golf course architecture should be. Um, and so we hope in, in, in a small way that the way we do things is, is ultimately a tribute to him. Gil, what do you think will be most distinctive about the country club next year at the U.S. Open after your work on it? You know, we tried again just to try to, to, to brush off the golf course and, and look at a lot of old photos. We've expanded a lot of greens, but they're still tiny. Um, so I think. You know, we're, we're really hopeful that Mother Nature cooperates and that, that Dave Johnson, who's an amazing superintendent, can get those greens to be really firm uh, because there's enough slope in them and there's certainly enough character. And if they're, the, you know, the small nature of them, if, if they're firm, uh, I think that will ultimately be, be the challenge. But the presentation of the place with the fescue and, and the rock outcroppings, it, it'll be a stunning backdrop for, for golf and, and a wonderful return to one of you know, our greatest venues in this country. But I think it's it's ultimately going to be if we can get those greens firm and those those targets are really going to be tough to hit. Gil, I got an easy one for you. I just need your favorite par three, favorite par four, and favorite par five in the world. So I mean, not not, not a big question here. Yeah, there's not only there's a few of those, right? Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, favorite par three, probably uh, six at National Golf Links. Just love the <laughs> the audacious nature of that green and sort of you know having to hit greens within a green. Uh, par four, four at uh, four at Fisher's Island. Uh, I love that blind shot. I mean, it's, in my mind, that is perhaps the greatest walk in golf. When you hit your shot into that punch bowl, it goes over that ridge, and then when you crest that hill, you've got the ocean as a backdrop, and you're looking to see how many balls are on the green and where they are in relation. And those reveals, I think, are always fun in, in golf. And par five, uh, by seven at Pine Valley. I love worst thing in golf is the second shot on a par five where you're just trying to make up ground and just hit it as far as you can. And that second shot at Pine Valley asks some pretty bold questions. Pretty good list, Gil. I'm, I'm going to give it to you. Hey, before I let you go, uh, I, you know, I normally reserve my, my hat of the day for the end of the show. But, you know, you're, you're so kind to, to kind of send me a caveman cap. Can you tell us what you're doing with caveman construction, my friend? Oh, you're the best. Thanks. Yeah, I've actually got the caveman on the sleeve here on my on my hoodie. Um, yeah, so caveman construction, those are our guys. Um, and we, we've created a scholarship foundation from caveman construction and we're selling caveman logoed goods and, and all that money goes to uh, children of of employees who work at clubs where we work. So, you know, Lake Merced here, uh, employees of the club who, who need some help with college funding. Uh, Jim Wagner started this whole thing and we've, we've been actually putting away some pretty good amounts of money. So yeah, please support the Caveman Scholarship Foundation. It's, it's, a, it's a good way to give some kids who, who need some help uh, some additional cash. And a great hat and also a great sweatshirt. I've got them both as well. Gil, I know you said you don't <laughs> like rankings. You're very, very high on the list. One of our favorite guests we have each and every time. Thanks for the time. Get back to work, my friend. All right. You guys are the best. Thanks and happy holidays. Happy holidays, Gil. Cheers. Not sure you, you can't like that guy. I mean, he's the best in the world, isn't he? He's there's a reason he gets the projects. He's very talented and he is as nice as it gets. We've been kind of throwing around some design words throughout the week. We'll keep this going. Design terminology one on one. Easily the most fun one to say Biarritz. It's a large green halved horizontally by a deep goalie. You got to go back to William Dunn Jr. in the 1800s. There's actually Biarritz Golf Club and that's where the term came from. And just to look around, I mean, there's some unbelievable ones around the world. Chicago Golf's third, Yale's ninth, Mid-Ocean's 13th, Fisher Island's fifth, Shore Acres, Yeamans Hall, 16th hole, Blue Mound, which is a great grist, Seth Rayner course, the third hole there. I mean, I'm talking like a stroke tougher, Jaime, if it's in the back portion 
of that green. But very fun to play these types of holes. Yale's so much fun. I think it's the most dramatic Biarritz. Uh, and a very long shot coming in. So a classic, and it's going to be even better after Gil gets done with it. We will continue the conversation. We return, including some Tiger talk on this Tuesday. We'll discuss his golf course designs, his favorite golf course in the world. We'll just dive a little deeper into Mr. Tiger Woods. You cool with that, Jaime? Absolutely. That works? Can't get enough, right? We'll be right back. Golf Today, brought to you by PointsBet. This season, don't just bet, live your bet life. And Bushnell Golf and the Pro XC, experience the best. And by Geico, you could save even more by bundling home and car insurance. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. We're back on golf today. TGR Design is a full-service design firm led by Mr. Tiger Woods. You see right there. Into the design space. And Tiger's into it. He likes it. He's always been a big fan of great golf design over the years. A look at some of the notable courses that Tiger has designed already. Hadn't been doing it for long, Jaime, but Blue Jack National, I think the one a lot of people kind of link themselves yeah. to and they think of Tiger Design is actually used to be Blake Tree National. I played a high school tournament wow. with Blake Tree National yeah. back in the day in the middle of, of Texas. Uh, didn't do well. This is going to surprise a lot of people. Didn't play great golf. I'm surprised. But, uh, I'm surprised. I mean, you should look at this. I mean, Payne's Valley, everybody's super excited yeah. about the Legacy Club as well. There are a lot of courses that have Tiger's name attached to them, and I'm assuming plenty more. To come, time for a little Tiger talk on a Tuesday, Jaime, and it's uh, it's been, you know, I don't know if refreshing is the term, surprising. I think to a lot of people to see kind of the big bucket. I think that was my takeaway from this video. It wasn't a small bucket. I mean, that's the professional golfer one that has about 300 balls in it. Absolutely, that's a guy getting ready to play. I mean, and you know, it all started with the three-second video of one swing. It was an eight iron, pretty, uh, pretty smooth. And but that was a shocker because it was like, gee, can Tiger ever walk again without a limp? And suddenly you're watching him swing beautifully. And every day was a progression to the point where he's wearing, wearing the red on Sunday. Uh, so I think Tiger's signaling to us that he's serious about this. Uh, we're all expecting him to play at the father and son at the PNC. But beyond that, he's he's got, I think, designs on winning some more tournaments. I mean, when you think of Tiger Woods, I mean, you think of the golf club in his hand, you think about him out there grinding on the golf course. It's so interesting to hear him talk about where he's at with the golf swing and when he was asked about chipping and putting against the other yeah. pros, his fellow professionals. There he goes, I chip and putt anybody. against anybody. I love that line from Tiger. But more than anything, more than what we look at going forward in 2022, I think it's just us celebrating this moment. I mean, we were so nervous to see what Tiger would look like as a person, and now we're talking about Tiger Woods as a golfer again, and just to see that golf swing. See Tiger put the golf glove on again. Everybody's celebrating that moment. He just sort of unifies the golf world into a more important place, and, you know, he is the, the measure of, of what people think of golf, and to see him back in it uh, is a great surprise, but it's also something that uh, I think makes us all watch more carefully because he's the measure 
Uh, and if he can do this, it just brings more importance to everybody who plays golf because we're all going to be paying more attention. And he is so special in what he's been able to do in terms of comebacks. And it's almost like uh, this is something he's almost looking forward to, another challenge. Uh, he's, I think he feels very fortunate that he's able to do it. But now that he's been given the opportunity, looks like he's really, you know, owning it and deciding, you know, I'm going to make this even better than my comeback for the 2019 Masters. Is it crazy to think that a golfer could be considered the toughest athlete of all time? I mean, we talk about golf and we kind of laugh at the idea of, of athletes, right? I mean, even right. players at times laugh at the idea of an athlete. But when you look at Tiger and you think about the second part of his career, if you will, and you watch those images in 08 on Saturday of Tiger not being able to even finish some of those golf swings at Torrey Pines, I mean, this is a guy that has been counted out over the last 10 or 15 years. He continues to come back from these surgeries and these injuries. Yeah. And now you're talking about uh, something we really didn't think we'd see, especially in 2021. Well, the physical endurance of pain is impressive. Uh, but I think other sports have had the equivalent or more, obviously. But I, I think you could make a very good argument for Tiger being the mentally toughest athlete ever. Because golf takes so much focus and concentration. And there's so many ways to get distracted. And there's so much time to think. And that with him, you know, so much baggage, especially after he was hurt and trying to manage all that. And yet he pulled it off. He kept getting it done somehow. And it's so hard to get it done in golf. That's probably got the, the you know, the, uh, the, the winning percentage that's uh, lowest of all the other sports. And yet Tiger would always find a way. And I think his peers would say, you know, he's got something. He's wired a certain way. We don't have that. That is his advantage. And I think the other athletes in other sports look at him so admirably because he has something they don't have. I think Tiger is the measure of what is truly a great athlete to a lot of the greatest athletes in the world. And I think it starts with his mental strength. Yeah, what's doable? Mm -hmm. what, can you, what can you do as a human being? I mean, right. as a singular human being. Because right. at times you look at Tiger and you don't think human being. I mean, what he was able to do yeah. in golf in terms of the winning percentage, you said, and yeah. always taking care of business when you had the lead. What, we, what did we just see from Colin Morikawa, who I think is kind of that next up mm -hmm. in terms of who's going to be the next Tiger Woods? We've said this a lot about a lot of players, Jordan Spieth, Roy McIlroy, and on goes the list. But Colin Morikawa had a big lead going into Sunday yeah. and wasn't able to close it out. And that was something Tiger always did. He and, always got that done. And we looked at Colin, and perhaps he will live to do that, because Tiger lost a couple early, too. But, you know, that is the separator. And, you know, Tiger didn't have many of those moments. If Colin has more, he won't be Tiger, which who's going to be Tiger? But yet you do look at Colin and go, gee, there's some, there's some qualities there that seem similar, and he can grow into something similar to Tiger, perhaps. But, you know, I think in the end, uh, Tiger's that once-in-a-century, once-in-a-millennium. Uh, athlete and uh, sort of a representative of the human potential movement. Yeah, you, you, know? <laughs> you think about, you know, kind of last year Netflix kind of hiking El Capitan and everybody's yeah, yeah. thinking, why would you do that with no ropes? And mentally it just didn't make sense to him. For Tiger Woods, I just feel like the pain doesn't quite hit him the way it hits normal people like you mm -hmm. and I. Well, Tiger, I mean, talked a lot of last week about a lot of different things. He also talked about golf, specifically his favorite golf course in the world. Yeah, I would love to, I'd love to play. <clears throat> At St. Andrews, there's no doubt about it. It's my favorite golf course in the world. And uh, to be a, a two-time Open champion there, uh, I would like just like to uh, this, just even being a part of the champion's dinner is, is really neat. Um, <clears throat> from my first one in 05 was my first one I got to attend the champion's dinner. Uh, it was pretty neat to, to be a part of it. And, you know, Peter Thompson was still alive, and I sat right next to him and to hear him tell the stories of when he came over and he played and shots he played and where he won, how he did it. It was awesome. You know, those are things like like at, like at the Masters. You, you just, those dinners are, are are priceless, and those stories and listen to them uh, talk about how they played and when they played it and what they did and. Um, it's just an honor to be a part of a room like that. And, yes, I would love to be able to play that Open Championship. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And this, uh, physically, and hopefully I can. Uh, I get, I got to get there first, okay? I, the tournament's not going to go anywhere, but I need to get there. And we hope to see him at St. Andrews. Of course, yes. Tiger Woods had a lot of success. Mm -hmm. Peter Thompson, you mentioned, by the way, of course, a five-time Open champion. You know, I caddied at St. Andrews when I got out of college. A buddy of mine had looped at Estancia, yes. and we got – put into some kind of weird spot where we both flew over, didn't know if we'd get jobs or not. And I spent a summer after college caddying around the old course. I caddied in a group with Peter Thompson. Peter wow. Thompson was in the group. I didn't get his bag, but I got to watch the great Peter Thompson play the old course at St. Andrews. That was the highlight of my summer for sure. On the first tee, someone came up to me and said, you know who that is, right? And at the time, I wasn't exactly sure, but there I don't is. know if it gets oh, better. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if, if, if you're... 
if your experience as a golfer can get better than walking those 18 holes, Jaime, and just getting a chance to go through that city? I feel so lucky that I got, got it early. I brought my dad there a few times. It was it is the, the beginning, and I think that's why Tiger has kind of a soft spot for it because he wasn't always a romantic and, uh, when he was a player. He just wanted the golf course in front of him, something to plot out very antiseptically, but St. Andrews brought out you know, some sentiment and some romance. And for me, I, I went there in 1974. I was 20 years old, and uh, I went there on a Eurail pass uh, after working for a summer in, in Germany somewhere at American Express as a gopher, just got enough money. And I actually uh, played in a group where Tip Anderson Arnold Palmer's old caddy was one of the was, was in our group. He didn't caddy for me. I was I didn't have enough money. <laughs> I remember I, I remember it cost three pounds seventy five. Wow. That was in 1974. It's uh, about 375 pounds now, but uh, it, you know, it's it's the greatest. If I had one round, that's where it would be. Yeah, same for me. And I, and I think it's it's a part of the experience. I mean, the golf course is is obviously exceptional and it's special and everything about it is so cool. And the moment you walk off 18, you want to just walk over to the first tee and give it another go. But it's the town, it's the city, it, it's kind of cresting the hill and Lucas, and you see the golf course presented in front of you. It's the fact that every restaurant in town in and around St. Andrews has golf at its core. I mean, you're, you're not going into a pub and not hearing at least one conversation yeah. about a great five iron struck that day. Yeah, and that 18th hole, the whole town's waiting for you. It's a beautiful place. You do really feel like you're coming home to something really special. By the way, what was your best there? My best score yeah. uh, at St. Andrews. I broke 70 one time. I think I shot 69 once. Uh, I had to birdie 18 to do it, uh, which, you know, you kind of yeah. get on the 18th. And you do. As you long as hand. the fan, yeah, as long yeah. as into yeah. the fan, I mean, you feel like it. But I did, I do remember I, I teed off at 6.30 p.m. Teed off at 6.30 p.m. I mean, you can play oh, yeah. basically all night. It doesn't get even dark there in the summer. It just kind of gets that midnight blue. But I, I remember I was playing through and birdied 17, which will always be my special moment. I mean, getting a chance to even hit it on the green there and to enroll in the putt. It, probably the most nervous I've been over a putt, but just some of those experiences, the moments, kind of getting a chance to go play all the other golf courses and all the golf courses around that town that maybe tourists wouldn't get a chance to check out. It is, uh, it's a place that, I, that I, I feel bad not having gone over for a couple of years. Well, you'll go back to next year, and, you know, it's always had great opens, too. I mean, I remember Doug Sanders and Jack Nicklaus. That was one I saw as a young guy and thought, this is incredible. And Tony Lima had one from San Francisco back in 1964, so he came home to this great reception. And then everyone since, whether it's John Daly or Tiger twice, Jack again, St. Andrews is the best. Seve, it, it just brings out the best, and it brings out the best memories, too. When you talk about favorite holes around the old course, I mean, it's very, very easy to throw 17 into that mm -hmm. conversation. You know, for me, it was always 14. The par 5 just made a lot of sense mm -hmm. to me. And, you know, when we watched the U.S. Amateur this past season, you watch the players take on a golf course like Oakmont, and you saw a lot of people kind of nervous about the way the golf course yeah. was played and you were hitting it into other fairways, I immediately went to St. Andrews because the 14th hole yeah. is a place that at times it makes Go more left. sense <laughs> to play it to another hole. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, this is the golf course. This is yeah. the OG golf course, and that design asks you questions that maybe seem surprising to golfers these days, but at times it makes more sense to play it to another hole and give yourself that angle. So this isn't the first time we've seen players take advantage of those certain golf courses. I saw that video floating around a Tiger kind of hitting it with Steve Williams yeah. in 2000. Is that the right steeple, Stevie? I mean, just some <laughs> unbelievable oh, that moments. Pure three Woody hit. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, he, he yeah. just avoided bunkers. I mean, the key yeah. to playing the old course is avoiding bunkers, specifically the 17th. When we dive into design terminology in and around the old course, you know, you think about pot bunker. I mean, what is a pot bunker? Well, it's something you don't want to be in, first of all, Jaime. Small yet deep bunker. I mean, it is a penalty. That's the key to yes. the bunkering across the pond. Getting is, out. It is a penalty. <laughs> it is about getting out of that bunker. Like you said, don't find yourself in it. And at times you see players putting it backwards and just chipping it out backwards. I think of 17th mm -hmm. at the old course. You think about that center bunker at the sixth hole at Riviera, even the 10th. At Pine Valley, it's got a nickname we can't say on air. I <laughs> Aperture. Mean, some of these, Aperture. Some of these, some of these pop bunkers are just really, really menacing. None more famous, of course, than that at the 17th at the old course. That was fun little just trip down memory lane. Brought me back to the younger days, Caddy. Yeah, you had a great at the old moment course. Yeah, I will here. never forget that experience. So we got much more to talk about, much more design talk, favorite par threes, favorite par fours, and par fives around the game. Architect Week continues after this. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. 
Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. We are back. It's that time of year where we dive into our favorite things in golf. This time it's favorite par threes, favorite par fours, and favorite par fives in golf. Jaime, this is an assignment. Yes. I mean, this is a deep dive into kind of your golf I, I could have used a couple more days, yeah. <laughs> a couple more weeks. Uh, well, let's start with Jaime Diaz, favorite par threes in golf, because he's got some great ones on this list, Jaime. I mean, you did your due diligence here. Well, you know, I, I've always been so scared on the 15th Pine Valley. I've only played, you know, a few times, but it's just such a great hard hole. Remember Gene Littler made a seven in the Shells Wonderful of Golf. Yale, again, that most dramatic beer ritz, incredible. Royal Troon is that beautiful postage stamp that's such a nice little jewel. Uh, I had a hole in one at Pacific Dunes, <laughs> a little fat three iron that ran in there somehow. At the 10th hole, you made a one yeah, there. Yeah, that was Back-to-back -back par threes. And then uh, I love that hole at Stream Song. I want to give the modern architecture a little room here. That is great. Uh, my dad, by the way, birdied uh, the postage stamp the one time I played Royal Troon. So I'm sure that would have made my dad's list as well. All right, my favorite par threes, Jaime. If you're cool with this, I got the 10th at Wingfoot oh, yes. West, 8th at Oakmont. I, I find the Oakmont hole so cool because it, it's kind of withstood the test of time. You know, driver for it was supposed to be driver back yeah, in the yeah. day, and mm -hmm. that's why you see it stretch at 290 yards now. You can land it short and run it up. Mm -hmm. The 15th at Prairie Dunes, the shoot hole there. Such a cool one. I mean, 16th at Cypress is going to make Somebody a, lot had of, to say it. a lot of lists. And then I, I did the same thing you did, the eighth hole at, at Wine Valley, where I made my hole in one. So you and I both kind of a, an ode to our own golf game somehow <laughs> on our favorite part threes. But that is what the lists are about. It's about personal experience. Yeah, and the 10th at Pacific Dunes is a great hole. I think that's Tom's favorite part three out there. So, But, yes, I guess I had a little ego going there. Yeah, the 10th, you can play it from two different tees. It's yeah. totally different angle depending on how you play it. Back-to-back -back par threes there. Some of the great finishes ever in golf there at Pacific Dunes. All right, now we'll go to par fours. This, to me, this was the toughest of the three yes. to dive into. Well, there's so many choices, you know. But for me, I, I love the 12th at St. Andrews. It's a, it's a drivable par four these days, obviously, but so much great strategy. A lot of things happen. Tiger talked about the finesse and touch it requires. I love the ninth hole at Pebble Beach as opposed to the eighth. And I saw yesterday, uh, you know, uh, we talked to uh, architects who said, you know, they, they, uh, Tom Doak preferred the ninth himself. Um, I love what Weisskopf did, the 17th hole at TPC Scottsdale. That's the greatest modern par, drivable par four. Valley uh, Bunyan, 11th, so scary. Down the hill, into the wind, the ocean on the right, incredible hole. And I just love the aesthetics for some reason of Pinehurst number two. I, I get to play it occasionally down where I live. And I love that hole when I come to it. It just looks so comfortable and perfectly kind of a, as a, uh, a composite of, uh, of what a golf hole should look. 12th hole at St. Andrews, talking about my days at Caddy, and that was the hardest hole in the golf course to Caddy. It was mm -hmm. so hard to explain to the players how many bunkers were out there in front of them because you can't see any of them. No. You can't see any of the bunkers from the tee. It's just such a specific place. It, again, I think three months into Caddy, and I still wasn't completely comfortable <laughs> giving my player a line there. Apologies to everybody that I caddied for there at the 12th. These are my favorite par, 416th at Bannon Dunes. You know, that's the famous hole there where uh, David McClay kid kind of got the job because he didn't want to put the hotel there. Let's put a golf <laughs> hole here. Fourth at Fishers Island is such a great hole. Gil Hans mentioned as well. 14th rule Dornick. Seventh at Cow Club. Yes. Not even part of the original design. And then the 14th hole at Yeamans Hall. I'm a Seth, I'm a Seth guy. You know, I, I got to yeah. throw some Yeamans in there as well. And those are our favorite par fours. So I found the par fives. Mm. You know, when you think about great holes, I think par three stick in your mind, and I feel like par fives kind of yeah. stick in your mind as well. A lot can happen on a par five, obviously. And there's more options, you know, and some are just slogs, three three shot holes, and some are actually fours and a half, like the 13th at Augustus, which might be the greatest example of that. But, you know, I have to pick the 13th at Augustus uh, uh, in there, but 
I love the 18th at National Golf Links of America because of where it finishes, and it's so dramatic on the right with the uh, with the sound on the right, and it's a scary hole in its own way because there's usually a lot of bets <laughs> coming down in yes. the hole too. Eleventh uh, at TPC Sawgrass, I think Pete Dye at his best. Just just so many great options and lines and things you can do on that hole. 16th at Olympic, it's just a killer historically in the in the open, but it is truly, I know people reach it now occasionally somehow, I don't know how, but it, to me it's three hard shots, and they're all hard. It's not like any of the middle one's an easy one or, or anything that you coast on. And 14th at St. Andrews, to your point, and just because we're at St. Andrews and the steeple's out there and the shot that Tiger hit and Jack made a 10 in Hills Bar Bunker, but you just feel special on that hole coming home because it is the longest hole, and into the wind it can be a beast, and downwind it's a real opportunity. When a player would hit it in Hell Bunker there at 14, Jaime, my head would go immediately. <laughs> I knew it was about to be a long next 15, a lot of 20 raking. minutes. All right, some <laughs> of my favorite par fives in and around golf. The 17th at Baltus Roll. I just love yes. the aesthetics of that par five. I mentioned 14th there as well on the old course. The 12th hole at Kings Barnes. Wow. You know, you talk about modern architecture. I think that is such a beautiful par five straight from the tee on. It's a difficult second into the green. And depending on where the hole location is, it's an easy birdie or it can be a tough par 13th I have is Augusta National as well, one of the great holes in existence. And I had the first hole at Tobacco Road. I love, I mean, you know, a Strands guy as well. I, I love what it asks off the yes. tee and then what it presents once you get through that chute in the fairway because it's a completely different hole yes. once you walk through it's that chute. It's a new shoot. world once you walk through that chute. And the chute looks so scary, but there's actually a lot of room. Mike Strands, you know, modern Oh, he was just he was modern so genius. smart at what yeah. he did. And his yeah. golf courses are so much fun to play. What did Gil say the compliment yes. is? When your fun. courses are fun, and those golf courses are fun. And 17th at Baltus Raw, when Daly hit that in two, that was one of the most exciting. That was kind of like Bryson driving, almost driving the sixth uh, at uh, Bay Hill. Very unexpected. Amazing. We didn't think it was going to happen. We're joined by the host of the series, Chris Como. And Chris, you're usually hosting Swing Expeditions. Can you tell us how this series is similar to or different from what viewers usually see with you on Swing X? Oh, yeah. Um, thanks for having me, by the way. I think, um, I think, it's similar in the sense, you know, it, it, for me, it's about finding some of these, these great coaches that are out there, uh, learning their stuff. We kind of go into these tangents where we'll riff off each other. So I've known Bill for probably about 10 years. We met on some of the internet forums where people would talk about like swing theory and different things like that. And he was always super active and we developed a friendship online actually. And we have like just a, a kind of great chemistry with each other. So um, we would go on some tangents, a lot of fun in that way, similar to Swing X, but it's a little bit of a longer form. Um, so it's, it's, it allows us to kind of like really sit in a topic, go a little bit deeper with things. Um, they have a, a very cool kind of interview section where Bill's getting interviewed, talking a lot about, you know, his family, obviously his historic golf family, um, things with his dad, his brothers. So it's just, it's just put together slightly different. I think it gives it a, everything a little bit more time to kind of just sort of, you know, marinate and go really get into things a little deeper and, and, and get a little bit more into to, um, Bill as, as a personality, as a golf personality. Yeah, Chris, I'm really looking forward to the show. Bill is so funny. I knew him when he was out there caddying. He kept everybody in stitches. And he's also one of the smartest guys along with you. So the brain power on this show is going to be tremendous. I just wondered, in terms of the old school versus the new school, I know Bill's a progressive person. He knows how to adapt. But how, what did you learn from him in terms of all the things that he's seen, going back to Hogan and everybody else that he saw firsthand and all the teaching uh, experiences he's had with his brothers? And what did he learn from you, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think Bill whether it be from me or just, you know, a lot of the teachers who are, are really into, um, you know, maybe using technology or, or, or kind of getting more to the science of things. Bill has been one of the people from say that, that older guard that has really made an effort to get up to speed with, with, I guess you could say this, this kind of more current, um, uh, movement of, 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 of golf instruction, if you will. Um, but for me to sit there and just listen to him, have these firsthand experiences of some of these great players and ball strikers. And I'm always, I, I've always been a big appreci appreciator of like the old school, what the great players have done and to really just sit there and hear him tell these stories was amazing. And there's a lot of like, you know, really interesting sort of specifics for instances talks about Sam Snead and what he calls like this left elbow sachet, which is a little bit of a left elbow move that I, I feel like I've seen a ton of great ball strikers in general. But for him to talk about how Sam um, really felt that and it was something that was a part of like what he tried to do to swing was awesome. Uh, having some of the firsthand exposure to Seve and some
is just, oops, I think, I, sorry about that. Uh, ha, you know, hearing about Seve's short game techniques, I mean, that's like arguably the best short game artist of all time. Um, just so much gold. So it, it was a lot of fun to, to really be around him and, and hear all these stories. And Chris, how are you charting and, you know, following uh, Bryson and his progress and the challenges ahead? And what are you expecting from him in terms of the next, maybe the next plateau that he reaches uh, upward uh, in 2022? Well, I hope it's not a plateau, right? I mean, I hope yeah. he just kind of keeps going. And, and he, he's, he's, he's like, I mean, that's the thing. He's always trying to push the edges, right? And this is one of the things that Bill, Bill's got his little, like, I think they're called like philosophies or whatever. But, but, you know, it's always trying to find ways, whether it be as a coach or as a player, how do you get better? That's part of the fun of it. And I think for Bryson, um, you know, he loves to compete, but as much of anything, he loves to find ways that he can just get a little bit better. So, you know, he's still trying to get more distance and it, it's amazing, right? Because he's already the longest guy on tour, but he's like, maybe I can get even longer. And there's statistically, you know, possibly even an increase of an edge by getting a little bit longer. Um, so he's still allocating time to that. Obviously, a lot of like short game, more of the precision aspects of the game is something he's focusing on. We're gonna, we're actually working tomorrow at Dallas National. Um, it's cold out here, so you know, there's also how do you get longer when it's cold out in like less than ideal conditions. So tomorrow will be like a great environment to test some of that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's. I, I just think you know, just like Tiger, just like anybody who's really at the top of the game. Uh, they're just never like staying pat, right? They're always trying to figure out like what is a way I can potentially get a little bit better. Chris, we've become obsessed with distance. Golfers have been obsessed with distance for a long time, but it seems like something we're really talking about now. I'm assuming young people 10 years ago would come to someone like you and say, how can I swing like Tiger? Or how can I swing like Adam Scott? What are young people asking of you today? Yeah, how can I it's it's become much more like kind of performance based as opposed to like some sort of aesthetic ideal. It's like, okay, how can I how can I hit it farther? How can I control my ball more? How can I, you know, deal with this injury or whatever? I, I think and this is one of the things I've been a big advocate for. I think uh, golf instruction is, is sort of moving away from like aesthetic ideals and more into just a very kind of practical sort of lens that we look at things through, um, you know, someone like Bryson is a little it is idiosyncratic with his motion um but part of that is because he hasn't you know sort of fell prey to like you should do this or you should do that or the club should look like this or whatever he's like i'm this is the outcome i'm trying to create how can i have it be this very sort of open-ended problem-solving endeavor um someone like bubba watson um does it more from a field perspective where it's like he's got no rules that are like handcuffing him in terms of what he should or he shouldn't do or you need to hit the same shot over and over again and he's just like look this is this golf course is my canvas and i'm an artist i'm going to figure out how to do it and, and bryson's got a got sort of the same mindset except you know maybe not as i mean he's very much an artist but it, it, it's as much of like a puzzle right so it's just again it's i think it's it's this overall approach of of like not having these sort of artificial constraints and saying what do I need to do to get better and partnering with a great, you know, whatever coach, uh, mentor, whatever it is to help them figure out how to do that. And that's where the young kids are, are coming to me and other coaches that are just like, look, this is what I'm trying to go after. These are the constraints I'm dealing with. Help me solve this problem. Chris, what's the single most popular reaction you hear from people that are watching Bryson hit it for the first time live? <laughs> <laughs> it's usually like some weird noise that comes out of their mouth. Um, <laughs> it's a gas it's not really and a wow like, it's, combined. Yeah, it's not really words. It's some like yeah, it's some weird kind of like either uncomfortable noise or like yeah, it's, it's it's more of an involuntary reaction, I think. Yeah, it happens to the best of us, Chris. We really appreciate the time. Excited <laughs> for the upcoming series on Golf Pass. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you, Chris. All right, coming up next on Golf Today, John Rahm ends the year on a historic note, preparing to close out 2021 atop the golf world rankings. We'll talk John Rahm historically when we return. We're back on golf today. Architect Week continues on. And Jaime, we're focusing on Winter Park, the nine-holer in Orlando. You played it? A lot when we were down in Orlando. So much fun. Played it with guys here at Golf Channel. And a course with incredibly complex greens and very, very simple everything else. You know, short, wide, and yet the greens made the golf course. A lot of fun. Great walk in Orlando Winter Park, a place you want to go and play.
And we're happy to be joined now by Keith Reb. And Keith, you had a different path into golf architecture. You weren't one of those guys diving deep into Scotland's gift as a 14-year-old. Give us your unique story into this world. Well, I mean, yeah, it is a, a unique path. Um, it's been an exciting path. And to where I am now, I, I would never believe I could be where I am now. Um, I started out doing, I was doing concrete work. Um, I got hired with a lands, I mean, with a Landscapes Unlimited in Lincoln, Nebraska, golf course development company as a laborer. I thought that working in the dirt would be way easier than working in concrete. So that's, that's how it started. Um, fell in love with, um, with building golf and, and, and the, you know, the journey has, has taken me so many different places. So. Keith, could you describe the chemistry between Bill Kerr and Ben Crenshaw and how much is collaboration with Riley Johns and others part of your creative process? It's, it's a hundred percent. The collaboration is, is, is how this fusion of golf gets built that Bill and Ben create and what Riley and I strive to do. It's, it's a collaboration. It's a fun factor. It's taking other people's ideas and not getting locked in. And it just really plays out when, you, when you're building a golf course to have that freedom. And, you know, and, and times you challenge each other on different things, but it, it really, it's, it's just a really fun process. Um, but Bill and Ben, I mean, they are just the best uh, to, to work for and work with. So, yeah. Keith, uh, beautiful art is so interesting to dive into. I mean, eventually you've got to kind of put the, punt, the paintbrush on the canvas. What's the first step like for you in terms of a project? Before the dirt's moved, before holes are laid out, how do you start the design process? Well, I mean, for, for when we're working with Bill and Ben, um, you know, they've done the routing. So they really set us up in, you know, for success. And then it really is hopping in a piece of machinery, turning it on, putting on some music. And, um, you know, Bill and Ben just really give us that freedom to be creative. And, and they let us, you know, work outside the box. And then they come in and, and do the edits as, as we, we do the work. And, you know, with, with Riley and I, I mean, when we go out to a field, we, we really try to get the heart of the club or the heart of who we're trying to build the golf course for. Um, we want to make sure that we connect with their vision and not bring kind of our our vision or you know our impose our ideas onto their 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 vision. So it just you know it's once you find out the heart and the root of what they're looking for, and then then the rest is fun when you get to get in the dirt and start building it. So, Keith, in terms of living right next to your project, did you do the Winter Park Nine in the same way that Donald Ross did Pinehurst Number Two? I, I yeah I, I would hope so I mean it's it's every time I drive by Winter Park and see everyone out there enjoying the golf course I see families out there on the putting green enjoying the putting course um, you you can just see the enjoyment and the fun of the people that are out there having the course so it is it's it's a labor of love I, I love driving out there I love interacting with um you know, people out there playing or the superintendent and all the people involved at Winter Park, they, they really have taken ownership of that golf course. And for a golf course that was losing, you know, over $200,000 a year, and now they're making that in profit. So it's, it's really been a, it's, it's, it's an exciting project and, and a whole to, to see where it's, where it came from and now where it is. Keith, is it weird to see golf architecture now being cool? You know, 2021, people like talking about this stuff. They're interested in the way golf courses are laid out. They want to go play famous golf courses. Is it fun to see that this part of the world, that golf now is cool? Yeah, it really is. I think, I think you've made a lot of people very happy seeing that they bring Architecture Week back to uh, the Golf Channel to talk about it and bring it in and, and, and give people a little bit of understanding that, you know, there's a lot of people that have different paths into this industry and, and what they're creating and what we're trying to create is a fun and, and bring the fun factor back to golf in, in every way that we build golf. And so it is, it's, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are bringing the social media side of things and, and giving more of a deep dive into what we do. And, and you know, it's, it's, it is, it's a lot of a different for me too, because I'm, I'm really used to being kind of behind the scenes and ever since Winter Park, now I'm kind of pulled in, you know, out of the back of the scenes and in front of the camera. So that is a very new thing for me, too. And um, I really appreciate this opportunity to come out here and, and, you know, kind of explain 
how and what we do when we're building golf. So, yeah. Keith, uh, I always think of golf courses as potentially such great places for dogs. And Pete Dye used to take his German Shepherds, he, all of them were named 60, there were like six of them, uh, to his projects. How much do you ever take your two Weimaraners on the course with you? Uh, well, the, the first Weimaraner, we, we had uh, Addie out at uh, Cabot Cliffs, and I had to put an orange vest on her because she'd just run all through the golf course. And um, on the 16th green at Cabot Cliffs, the superintendent that was there was was tossing. He was just throwing rocks off the side of the cliff in the front of the golf hole, just picking up rocks and throwing it out. And then all of a sudden, I stopped and I looked around. I didn't see my dog, and I looked down over the cliff, and she is literally running up the side of the cliff. And she she's not even moving because the rocks are going right below her. So, um, yeah, that was you know that was that was definitely a, a scary moment, but. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing we love having a chance to bring our dogs out on site, let them run around, get the energy out. I don't know how, you know, even Riley's got a wine runner too. I don't know how us people in golf uh, construction end up with, with these most high-maintenance dogs. So, um. <laughs> Just part of it, part about being in the golf yeah, world. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I mentioned that golf architecture now feels cool. What would you say to a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old that might be interested in this field, the processes to maybe get somewhere where they could do this for a living? You know, I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, on my personal opinion, it would be, you know, learning, learning from the ground up, you know, learning the construction side of it. Um, it makes it a lot easier when you kind of know how to build it and when you want to communicate it. So it's either, you know, interning with a golf architecture firm or a golf construction firm or, you know, contacting me or Riley and, and you know, there's doors that can be open or I, I love to have the conversation to, you know, bring more people into this field. And um, it's it's exciting field. It's a lot of fun. It, it does come with a lot of challenges and sacrifices, but it's well worth it. Um, you never really know where you're going to end up sometimes. So if, if if you can take it in uncertainty, then this is this is the career for you. So um, but, yeah, I think it's just. Let things happen and, you know, don't try to force it, but just, you know, talk to talk to someone in the field and, and go out there and meet the superintendent at your golf course and talk to them. I mean, there's just there's a lot of avenues in, into this industry. So you guys wondering what has been your most, you know, sort of most important favorite experience as an architect that shaped you a kind of a eureka moment. Have you had one of those? <sighs> the eureka moment, I, you know, I would say. I would say it's a little bit on this site at Cabot St. Lucia. Um, you know, we had a lot of challenges with making a few of these golf holes really fit and work um, with the elevation change. So kind of going into golf architecture now and not having a fear of what the site gives you and knowing that you can still make a site playable. This, this, this site here has really given me the no fear. Um, you know, Winter Park was the the moment that pushed me out of just being a shaper or just being working in the dirt, but actually pushed me into the architecture side, more of it on that side. So that I would say, you know, each, each, each individual projects that I'm on, you kind of take a little bit from each of those projects to kind of shape you as you go forward in the industry. So. All right, Keith, last question. We need your favorite par three, par four and par five in the world that's uh that's pretty pretty high, high packaged question but yeah. we've been discussing them on the show so far today okay part three um i'm gonna say the 16th here at cabot point um at cabot st lucia um <laughs> you know i can't wait until people get a chance to play it um par four um i would say i would say at um lost farm the the eighth hole well, no seventh hole and 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 even eighth hole are amazing amazing golf holes and for par five um the 15th at cabot cabot cliffs is just it just it's just amazing golf hole and um to be a part of that and all those courses so yeah that whole experience up in nova yeah. scotia is no joke keith we really appreciate the time congrats on all the success and we'll chat with you soon yep thank you thank you Shane. hi I mean, we're not done yet we got more great guests coming up on Architecture Week. Christine Frazier, Brandon Johnson on Wednesday, David McClay Kidd, Jim Urbina on Thursday, Rob Collins on Friday. And we might add more guests. You never know. Oh, I'm sure there's guys lining up right now. And they're all <laughs> sharp guys. And it's, it's 
A look at some more terminology in terms of course design. The punch bowl, Jaime, you know what this is? A green that sits yeah. below ground level, surrounded by grassy mounds, which act to funnel air and shots onto the putting surface. These are a design that actually help a golfer. Absolutely, you do get some nice bounces. I know the 16th hole at National Golf Links of America, that's a, a, a you know, it's a blind shot, but it helps you out. Everything kind of comes back in. You got to really hit a bad shot to miss, miss the punch ball. I missed the punch ball, so that means I've hit a bad shot. We're back on golf today. We're going to flash back to May 2021. Ole Miss Rebels got the convincing victory over Oklahoma State in the Division I Women's Golf Final at Greyhawk. A perfect way to cap off Kennedy Swan's college career before headed to Q School. That's the piece of hardware you want to take home when you're a collegiate golfer. Great moment in Scottsdale. Mercer Bags. Is that an all-time great name? Yes. Golf Mercer Bags. Heck of a writer. Love it. Wrote this for GolfChannel.com about Kennedy. A must read, go check that out for sure. And earlier this week, Rich Lerner caught up with Kennedy. Kennedy, thanks for being with us and congratulations on all the success you have had. Great to be with you. Thank you, good to be here. Uh, Kennedy, you led Ole Miss to the first women's title in school history. What's the biggest difference between playing in college and life at the professional level? Uh, the first thing I'd probably say would have to be financially. Um, you know, in college, the school pays for everything. They pay for all your meals, all your travel expenses, and um, all that kind of stuff. Whereas um, when you're out playing professionally on your own, that's coming out of your own pocket. Yeah. Um, and then I'd say the second biggest difference is probably not having your team there with you. Uh, you still have friends um, that you make kind of along the way but you don't have teammates or coaches um, that actually travel with you to help be a support staff or, uh, you know, have a team to fall back on if you have a bad day. What are some of the other challenges in getting your career going beyond the two that you just pointed out? Um, I would say the biggest one for me has been the fact that I missed stage three by one stroke, and that has affected my career for the rest of the year. You know, I missed a, a four-footer on – um, my 16th hole the last day and that four footer is going to haunt me for the next year because instead of being at stage three trying to earn my LPGA card I'm going to have my symmetric card for 2022 so I think um, you know it, it's hard um, with it just being yourself because the only person you have to blame is you um, and it can definitely get lonely traveling a lot by yourself um, but, yeah, I'd just say it's tough having, you know, one moment or one tournament or one round to find your next year of what you're going to do. On the travel, Kennedy, I always thought that was, uh, you know, an, an aspect of uh, the professional life that is overlooked as, as, a, as a challenge. You're far from home. In the case of, say, a young LPGA player, they might be, you know, in – Thailand or in in Singapore they've missed a cut they're 20 years old uh, they don't, don't know the language you're eating uh, food that you're not familiar with and you've got a couple of days on your own I always thought that was really difficult in looking at that possibility you already touched on it how do you go about dealing with that um, honestly I'd just say experience you know it's something that um, as a uh, and a Symmetra Tour rookie for 2022, you know, I don't know a whole lot about traveling by myself. I've always had my parents or my boyfriend or my team or, you know, I've always had someone with me to travel um, or my caddy, you know, this season so far. So I think um, come 2022, it's going to be a really big adjustment because um, it's going to be hard financially to afford a caddy for every event. Um and so I think it's just all about practice and you find your, your people that are doing it too and that are alone and you kind of make some friends along the way. And, um, but you really just got to kind of learn from experience and learn by doing. Kennedy, any way uh, early on to gauge you know, how your game stacks up to some of the best in, in the business? And once you've made the determination, in what areas do, do you think you really need to pay attention and build? You know, I think it's just experience for me. Um, going into stage two, I was pretty nervous because they only took, uh, like, the top 45 in ties out of, you know, 300 girls, which is a pretty 
pretty tough field to make it out of. Um, and I didn't really know if I would be good enough. Um, you know, I've had people tell me that I was good enough to make it through. Um, but I think a lot of it is self-confidence and self-belief. Um, you know, over that four footer on 16, I just got extremely nervous. Like, I mean, my hands were shaking so bad. I felt like I couldn't even hold the putter. Um, and I was taking all my deep breaths and trying to stay in my routine, but you know, I, that was my first time I'd been in a situation like that. I mean, I would say I was even way more nervous than I was at nationals. Um, just cause again, it was all on me and it was all on, you know, that was my career and this is my career going forward. Yeah. Um, so I think mentally I just need to strengthen up a little bit and figure out when I get to a point that I get that those nerves, um, I get feel like I can't hold the putter like what you know what can I do going forward to still make that four footer instead of missing it uh, I remember way back when first time I was on TV and I was nervous could barely get a sentence out reps are are everything you're on the, you're on the right track uh, Kennedy what are some of your career aspirations what do you want what do you hope to do someday I'd like to be a full-time LPGA tour player. Um, I'd like to have a couple wins under my belt at some point. Um, I'd like to play in all the, the female majors. Um, and I don't know, it'd be pretty cool to have a major trophy one day, but uh, I think, I think I'm definitely going to need some more experience and some more reps <laughs> before that's on the table. Yeah. The, the other question, this uh, may seem basic, but do you love it? That's, that's the one I always think you have to answer. How much do you love it? Absolutely. And that's something that I struggled with um, all throughout college. You know, when I transferred to Ole Miss, I kind of had to make a decision um, to myself on whether I actually did love it or whether I was doing it for other people. And that was the decision that I had to make too. going turning pro is making sure that I did it for myself and not for anyone else, because there's tons of girls that are out there that are doing it for other people and they're miserable or they don't play well because their heart's not in it. And if I was going to do this and give it a serious shot, my heart had to be in it. Mm. Love what you do. And then the attitude of gratitude, just, you know, be thankful every day that you get to do this uh, and you're going to have a great ride wherever it takes you. So we're pulling for you, Kennedy, all the best. And thanks for being so honest and sharing your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on.